0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. And let's start with a word of prayer together. Our Father in heaven, how you delight whenever your children come and offer up any kind of prayer to acknowledge you and to draw close to you. Surely part of our worship is the attention we give as your word is spoken. So may we do that, Lord, with readiness of mind and having our full attention today even as you have spoken to us through these Ten Commandments so far as we deal with this Eighth Commandment. Make application to each heart that our lives would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was reading an article from the Associated Press. It seems that a man bought a brand new car and drove it home to show his wife. So he pulled into the driveway got out of the car, ran inside to show his wife, tell his wife to come out. Well, his wife stopped him inside the house, didn't go out immediately. She said that she had a gift for him. She anticipated his excitement over this car. And she had a nicely wrapped gift. He opened it up, and it was the club. you familiar with that? The club is that device that attaches to the steering wheel of a car to dissuade any would-be thieves from ripping it off. He saw it and was so excited. Thank you, honey, for being so thoughtful. You knew that I was excited about this car. So club in hand, husband and wife went out from the house into the driveway where their brand new car had been stolen while they were in the house. True story. How sad. What a feeling of vulnerability and despair. And if you've ever had anything ripped off, you know that feeling. In fact, show of hands, how many here have had anything stolen from you? Raise your hands up. Look around. That's like all of us. I've never had a car stolen, but I had a bicycle stolen, among other things. Once I pulled into my, after Sunday service, into my garage, kept the garage door open five minutes I went upstairs just to change clothes, come back down, in that length of time somebody had been watching and stole my mountain bike. That happened to me twice in the same house, but it's not as bad as my next door neighbor. My next door neighbor and his wife went out for a weekend, a moving truck pulled into their driveway unloaded everything in the house into the truck and drove away now I saw the moving truck but I thought somebody was moving in I didn't know that somebody was ripping off those who had already moved in I mean it looked like a regular moving truck they stole everything I know you're thinking I don't want to live in your neighborhood <laughs> there has been problems with fevery stealing ever since the beginning of humanity. Hence, the need for the commandment, you shall not steal. I even got an article last night. Somebody emailed it to me. Somebody in Singapore stole a Bible from a bookstore. And the judge sentenced him to four months in prison. The judge was quoting the Bible to him and said, Young man, I suggest that the next four months in prison... You read that Bible. In fact, he marked it page 60, you'll find the words, You shall not steal. But we discover, as I mentioned, from the beginning of time, people have had problems with this. Archaeologists have discovered watchtowers in the ancient fields, a place where somebody would be keeping watch over crops, over animals, over houses to keep watch over property lest a thief would come in and steal it. Another ancient way of thievery was moving boundary lines. Usually boundary lines were marked off by rocks. So what people would do, and it was a law in the Old Testament against it, but they would move their boundary line ever so slightly. Get up in the middle of the night, move that rock just an inch or two into your neighbor's property. And then in a few weeks, you move it another inch or two. Well, over time, you can acquire a lot of property. I even heard a story. Don't know how true it is, but I heard it. A guy walks into a convenience store, comes up behind somebody wanting to buy something, and he sticks, pokes something in his back, and the thief says, stick him down. And the victim says, What? I think it's supposed to be stick them up. And the thief said, oh, that's how it goes. No wonder I haven't made any money at this thing. Well, it was Martin Luther who in his day said, only a small percentage of thieves are actually hung. If we were to hang all thieves, where would we find enough rope? You say, but Skip, what does that have to do with us as God's people, as Christian people? Aren't Christians the most pure, the most honest in all the world? Well, some think so. There's a sociologist from Princeton University by the name of Robert Wuthnow who has studied this. He studied people's ethics based upon their belief system. And he believes this is true. He noted that there's less stealing, cheating and tardiness and bending of the rules among those who attend church at least once a week. Those involved in evangelical fellowships demonstrate an even higher ethical standard in the workplace. You say, that's great news. That's the way it ought to be. Not so fast. Not everybody agrees with Robert Wuthnow, now. George Gallup, for example and his famous Gallup poll organization has also studied Americans and religious Americans and he studied things like people reporting on their income tax or expense accounts and he noted there's a large percentage of Americans that don't think cheating on their income tax or expense reports is stealing and he said and I quote professions of faith are not often followed by ethical performance so who's right Robert Woods now or George Gallup answer it doesn't matter what matters today is about you and me how we fare under this commandment well the commandment as I said is simply stated verse 15 is only four words An easy text to make it true in one Sunday. You shall not steal. Four English words. In Hebrew, it's even simpler, two words. A translation from Hebrew would simply be steal not. You can't get any simpler than that. But what I'd like to do is unpack this commandment. First of all, we notice this commandment is a primary commandment. Let me explain what I mean. It's not just the Bible where we find this command. It's not just in the Judeo-Christian heritage where we find you shall not steal. It seems to be a value highly held in virtually every culture, every civilization. It seems to be a generally accepted standard of the human race. Not so with some of the other commandments. For instance, the first one. I'm the Lord your God. You will have no other gods besides me, Yahweh. Not every culture holds to that. Or the second commandment, you will make no graven image when you worship me. Not every culture values that. But this one, it seems, is different. It's primary. It's basic. And just about every civilization would agree, this is good. Don't rip people off. So you could go back to ancient Egypt or ancient Babylon, the famous code of Hammurabi, which shows all of the ancient laws of that culture and you find that this commandment is mentioned. Now in the Old Testament, which we're in, Exodus 20, the principle is stated in verse 15. The practice of the principle is outlined in chapter 22 of Exodus. And it would seem as I've gone through that chapter and others that God in the Old Testament wants the victim to be compensated and the criminal to be punished, not vice versa. Compensated. So, for instance, if in the Old Testament you were to steal something, you know what you do? You pay it back and add 20%. Compensation. If you steal an animal, you pay it back double. So if you steal one, you pay back two. If you steal four, you pay back eight. Compensation. If you steal an animal and you kill that animal or sell the animal, you pay it back four or five-fold. It can get pretty expensive to be a thief. And if you steal a human being, we'd call it kidnapping, the punishment is the death penalty. On the news not long ago, there was a girl who was caught. She was trying to figure out a way to... Get people's money, steal couples' money by pretending to have them adopt her baby. She had recently had a baby, she'd bring her baby in, they'd fill out forms, she would take a down payment of some kind and go on to the next couple. Using her baby to steal people's money. Now, a note about the Old Testament there was no prison system back then. Interesting. It was all about restitution. You know, today people go to prison and sit under the experts in prison and figure out how to do it better, and they get out and they're even more refined in some cases in their crime. No, back then it's, you work it off, man. You pay it back. There's going to be restitution and compensation. When we move to the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture, we discover that they also looked dimly upon thieves. And more stringently did they punish the thief. It's not that they had to pay back. If you were caught in the act of stealing, you would be publicly flogged. Or worse, remember who was dying next to Jesus Christ on the cross in the Roman era? Two thieves, Mark tells us. Being put to death for their crime of thievery and insurrection. Now, in our culture, the American culture, where there's the new victim mentality, this is a huge problem. Right before second service today, somebody came in. She said, what 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 commandment are you covering today? I said, you shall not steal. She said... Good, because I just got broken into last evening. My car right out front. Somebody threw a brick through my brand new car. Didn't steal the car, but broke into it and stole things from it. It's a big problem. I did a little research. I went online and I found one online legal source that said, shoplifters cost U.S. businesses approximately $16 billion a year. Sixteen? That's not chump change. 16 billion dollars a year from shoplifting the same legal source estimates one out of every three new businesses will close, fold, end due to shoplifting you say shoplifting who's shoplifting it must be the very poor, right that they need to survive they have to do that to stay alive not so One Washington source said 70% of all shoplifters are in the middle income bracket. 20% are in the upper income bracket. They're rich. Only 10% of the shoplifters that are caught fall into the low income bracket. Then there's hotel theft. 500 million a year. Some hotels say that one out of every three guests in a hotel steal something. A a towel, a robe, a refrigerator, I don't know what they steal. (laughs) One out of every three guests steals something. There's even an ad in a classified column in a university medical journal reading, Will the person who stole the jar of alcohol from room 303 kindly return my uncle's appendix? no questions asked. That's desperate. What would you do with an appendix anyway? A few years ago, there was a strike in New York City, a garbage strike, garbage collector strike. And in a big city, when you have a garbage collector strike, it's it's bad. It gets stinky really quickly. So the garbage collectors, the sanitation engineers, weren't picking up the garbage. One New Yorker had an ingenious way of getting rid of his garbage. Every night he'd wrap it up and place it in a box and put it on the front seat of his car. Every day it was gone, got stolen. That's how he got rid of his garbage. That's pretty smart. This guy knew human nature, didn't he? He'd wrap it up and a guy said, I'm taking that. And he'd take it home and he'd open it up. It's just garbage. Gotta love that. It's a primary commandment. Something else about this commandment as we unpack it, it's, it's a presumptive commandment. You see, the commandment itself implies when it says, you shall not steal, it implies that somebody's going to own something in order to have it stolen. So it implies that private property is rightful. It's okay to own something. Now socialism would say that everything belongs to the state. Capitalism would say everything belongs to the individual. I think both of those are wrong. The Bible would say it all belongs to God. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So here's how it works. God owns everything but has made you and I stewards of some things. Stewards of it. Managers of it. I bring this up because every now and then you'll run into well-meaning, very zealous Christians who say, well, if you're truly a spiritual Christian, you'll sell everything and you pool your resources in a communal, communistic, socialistic kind of a way, like the early church, they'll point out, like Ananias and Sapphira and others who sold property and laid the money at the apostles' feet. That, they say, is true spirituality. That's New Testament. New Testament. Well, first of all, it was never enforced in the New Testament. It was always voluntary. It was never a commandment. It was done by necessity because the people, the church in the New Testament, they were losing their jobs. The Sadducees were firing all the people that worked for the temple because of their new messianic beliefs. So by need, they had to sell things and pool their money together. Now... The Bible would endorse private ownership, or should we say private stewardship. And here's why. It's so that as you look at what God has entrusted to you and I, and seeing others who have a need, we could be instruments to meet that need. Paul writes in Ephesians 4:28, He who has been stealing must steal no longer but he must work hard doing something useful with his own hands that he may be able to share with those in need. So, private property is rightful. It also implies, even by that last text I just read, that diligent labor is honorable. Most of you own what you own because you worked for it. Hard work. Or your parents worked hard for it and... It's part of the inheritance. But nonetheless, hard labor went into it. The Bible commends labor. You say, boy, that's good, because that seems like all I do. My middle name is labor, you say. I've labored before I was married. I've labored certainly after I've been married. I'm laboring for the kids, now the grandkids. And I hope they appreciate you for that, hardworking dads and moms, for your labor, because the Bible would commend it. Somebody once said, a a dad is somebody who carries pictures where his money used to be. No money in there anymore. He's been laboring to support, but here's pictures of the family. They're worth it. Augustine once wrote, no one had anything but praise for my father who, despite his slender resources, was ready to provide his son with all that was needed to enable him to travel so far for the purpose of study. Many of our townsmen, far richer than my father, went to no such trouble for their children's sake. Now there's a guy who appreciated the labor of his dad and a great theologian who knew that diligent labor was honorable. Now let me throw out a caution at this point to moms and dads, but especially to dads. Men, dads, fathers, Restrain yourself from giving your kids too much. I'm not going to win any points with young people at this. But restrain yourself. I know you grew up. It was hard when you grew up. And you have the best intentions. You want to make sure they don't suffer like you suffer. So your tendency is to give them everything. Don't. Bless them. But don't bless them too much. Let them also learn the value of hard labor. Of working for it. Otherwise, they'll never appreciate the stuff that they have. Make sure they learn that as well. So bless them, but don't bless them too much, if you know what I mean. Be careful with that. Restrain yourself. It would also imply trading and investing is commendable. You know, the Bible is filled with proverbs and texts and principles about how to manage your finances. And the book of Proverbs, for example, talks about lending, borrowing, investing. A classic text is even in Proverbs 31 with the virtuous woman. It says, she considers a field and she buys it. And presumably, in the context of what she already owned, it's to invest in property that it might gain. And even Jesus, Matthew 25, commends wise investment. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now you shall be put in charge of many. So here's how it all works. God has entrusted to you and to I certain things, incomes. We're stewards. With that, we find those who have needs. We help them. We provide for our family. We work hard, and God will bless that. And if there's any left over, you can invest it. And be wise with that investment and the Lord can bless you and thus bless others with even more. Third and finally, it's a prohibitive commandment. It's pretty obvious to see that. It's it's another one of those thou shalt not commandments. Thou shalt not steal. So it's prohibiting certain actions from taking place. Now, though other cultures employ this commandment and would regard thou shalt not steal as a high value to be held in their society. Only the Bible tells you why. And the answer is this, it's wrong to steal because whatever a person has, according to the Bible, God has entrusted that to them for whatever reason. James chapter 1 verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning in deuteronomy chapter 8 moses said and you shall remember the lord for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth so when you steal it's a double sin you're st- you're sinning against god and people heaven and earth the lord and your neighbor You're sinning against God because in effect you're accusing God of not providing adequately for you. You don't give me enough. I have to do this. In effect, you're making an accusation against God's provision. And second, you're sinning against your neighbor because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. So the prohibition, the negative commandment, you shall not steal. Now what actions could this commandment be applying to. Let me give you a few categories. Number one, stealing from your employer. I'll give you a scenario. You get a job. You love it for a day. Okay, a week. You love it for a week. You're into it. You agreed to work for a certain wage, to do a certain amount of work, and you love it. But after a while, you start becoming dissatisfied With that job. And you start rationalizing. Why should they have more than I have? They don't pay me enough for what I do. They don't recognize me. So a number of activities could take place at that point. For instance, calling in sick. When you're not sick. But you've rationalized it. They give me seven sick days a year. I've only taken two. I've got five left. I'm taking today. But you're not sick. Well... I'm sick of work. <laughs> but I think the term applies to being physically infirmed. And if you're not, you just stole a day from your employer. Or taking items from the office. Oh, they won't miss it. It's just a copy machine. <laughs> They've got more. I don't have any. No, seriously, it usually begins with paper clips pads of paper, pens, and it's a big deal. Super D Drugstore, a chain down in the southeast, knew that it was a big deal. They started a program, they called it Integrity Testing. Based upon their research of employees stealing things from the company, the vice president said, we've already saved $400,000 with this Integrity Testing from the stolen goods of employee to employer. Here's another example. Making phone calls with the company phone that you're not authorized to make. Well, I'm just going to call my dad. He lives in Tokyo, but... But have you been authorized to make that? Or checking in late, leaving early, taking longer breaks than you should. It's interesting that workers in America admit... To spending 20% of their time at work goofing off. <laughs> That's just what they admit to. That's a whole day. Now, think of that and compare that to what the Bible tells us about handling our employers. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Servants, you could translate that workers or employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service, not as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. A heartfelt giving for what they're paying you. So that's stealing from your employer. Let me now reverse that. It's only fair. What about employers stealing from their employees? Like not paying them what they said they'd pay them. Not paying them on time. Leviticus 19 tells us, Do not cheat or rob anyone. Always pay your hired workers promptly. Now I'm going to tag something on to that one. What about paying credit? Giving credit to a worker who's done a good job. Well, I hired him. Yeah, but he did it. Make sure that he or she gets the credit for that job and you don't take the... Don't steal that credit from that person. So stealing from your employer, employees. And what about this one? Stealing from the government. You know, the T word. Taxes. We don't like that word. We bristle every time it's tax season oh, they're, they're, they're government. They're such ripoffs. Well, in the New Testament, they came to Jesus about paying taxes, the temple tax. Jesus said, Peter, go down to the Sea of Galilee and go fishing. Isn't that great a tax season for God to say, go fishing? But he said, the first fish that you draw out will have a coin in its mouth that will be just enough money to pay the temple tax. (laughs) Jesus is handy to have around at tax time. (laughs) When he was questioned about this on another time, he took a coin and he said, whose image and inscription is on this coin? They said, it's Caesar's. They said, then render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So whose face, whose inscription is on that dollar bill in your pocket? Who is it? Washington. So give to Washington. What's Washington's? Give to God what belongs to God. Romans 13, we read, Therefore you must be subject for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due. Now, I know you might be thinking, Boy, Paul's really stretching this because he calls the IRS, tax agents, God's ministers. Wow. In the same verse, he says, You do it for conscience' sake. In other words, as you honor the government that you're a part of and you do it to honor God, you're going to have an easy conscience. You're going to rest well. True story, a true letter. The IRS even published it some years back. It seems that a fella wrote a letter to the IRS and in the envelope he put five $100 bills with a letter. Dear sirs, I haven't had a good night's sleep since 1970. He said, I've been cheating on my income tax since then. Hopefully now I'll sleep better. Five $100 bills. At the end he said, if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. (laughs) I guess he's not that guilty in his conscience. One source that I read noted, if every American paid what they owed in back taxes... The national debt could be retired in a single year. So big, they report, is the problem. So stealing from your employer, from your employees, from the government, all of this could be applied to you shall not steal. And I'm going to end with this one, stealing from God. You go, stealing from God? That's not even possible. God owns everything. How is it possible to steal from God? That's exactly what the people of Israel asked the prophet Malachi when he accused them of stealing from God. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? The Lord answers, In tithes and in offerings. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not even be room enough to receive it. By the way, it's the only time in the Bible God says, I want you to test me on this thing. We're told not to test the Lord except in this area. Try me, test me in this area, tithes and offerings. Now I'll admit this is one of those overdone issues especially by organizations and clergymen we all hate it I hate it when I hear somebody on television or on the radio if you don't give this week God's program is going under oh please spare me don't poor mouth God God owns a cattle on a thousand hills we depend on him he doesn't depend on us I hate it when people poor mouth the Lord and give him that kind of a reputation. And so do a lot of other people. There was a couple of women. They uh, went to hear the new preacher at the church that they had attended for years. And one said, I hear he's really good. They went the first week and his sermon was against drinking and they loved it. She said, what a good preacher. That's preaching. Amen. Amen. Second week they went, and they loved it. He was speaking against smoking. I love this preacher. Amen. He didn't like smoking. Next week he was preaching against gambling or womanizing or something. They were amening the whole sermon. The fourth week, he preached on tithing. And that did it. One of those gals went right up to that preacher and said, Young man, now you've done it. You've left preaching and you've gone to meddling. That's how a lot of people feel whenever you mention money. Fact people are sort of used to this and keyed to it. It's like, oh I'm just kinda of waiting for them. Oh, there they are, they mention money. All these preachers mention money. And that's true. It's been overdone. But you know what? If Christians would tithe, I don't think anybody ever ever have to mention money again. It would be like the Old Testament in the tabernacle when they took an offering for the temple for the tabernacle, Moses and the elders had to restrain them from giving. They gave too much. So, when I tithe, and that's the first check that I write every pay period, right to the church, to the Lord's work. When I do, I'm acknowledging God's ownership, God's priority in my life. So, the tithe and the offering. If you made a dollar this week and that's all 10 cents is the Lord's. If you made 10 dollars, one dollar is the Lord's. You made a hundred dollars, 10 dollars. If you made a1,000 dollars, a hundred dollars is his. If you made a million dollars, come see me afterwards. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, listen. One person said, "Money is like manure you stack it up, it stinks. But if you spread it around, it makes things grow. So it's not that 90% is mine and 10% is the Lord's. It's all His. It's all His. He's asking you to acknowledge your trust in Him by using that for His purposes. I think it makes sense that if a person can rob from God, he's apt to rob from anybody. So don't stick them down, stick them up. Lord, everything is yours. My life is yours. Now, could it be that you've been robbing from God by not giving him your life? God cares a lot more about your life than your money. You know the old saying, your money or your life. God just wants you, your life. He wants you to give him yourself, to surrender your life to him. And some of you may have withheld that. You've never made a decision yet to follow Jesus Christ. You've never surrendered your life to the mastery of God. That ought to change. That needs to change. certainly needs to change before your death, which could happen at any time for all of us. Are you sure? Do you know that if you were to die this week, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you'd be in heaven? The Bible wants us to live with that assurance. So, I want to give you that opportunity. Not to give the Lord a dollar or a million dollars, but to give Him your life today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's our deepest prayer in closing this message that we would realize that you own everything. You've entrusted a great deal to us. We are merely managers, just stewards. Too much has been given, much shall be required. To the faithful servant, you gave more. Lord, I pray that we would be very careful in terms of stuff, things, money, And we would be quick to look at ourselves rather than looking at others, rather than considering what others have or don't have, our own hearts and our own attitudes toward it. Lord, I pray that we would be ready to give to those who have a need, that we would be ready and willing to exercise our obligation as a citizen of this country toward our government, that we'd have a high regard and respect for those we work for, are those that we hire, Lord? I pray most of all that our our life before you would be one that we care about the most. That we are always living under the the eye of God, seeing, knowing everything. It's my prayer now that. If anybody here has not yet surrendered the life to Christ, that they would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.